Hi, everyone. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Monica Molinero. And I'm Yuman Chad. And tonight we're here with Sonia Varma. So, Sonia, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your research or what you do here at Western? Sure. Um, so, I'm a second year master's student in the neuroscience program here at Western. And I work in an auditory lab uh, with uh, Dr. Ingrid Johnsrud. And so, what I do is look at um, how the different levels of the auditory system interact with one another and specifically I'm interested in um, sensitivity to temporal structure in these levels. So uh, temporal structure would be these t this kind of timing information that's really important to sounds, especially natural sounds like speech and music. And I just want to see how sensitivity, sensitivity to that is related across the different levels. Okay. I guess if we kind of unpack that a little bit, mm -hmm. what does that mean? <laughs> Overall, big picture. Okay. Um, so the way I kind of uh, like to think about it is um, normally when people think about hearing or hearing impairments, they think of uh, all of a sudden you can't hear and just, you know, sounds are way quieter to you. Um, and that's, that is one type of hearing impairment. So in quiet, if you're still not able to hear sounds, that's kind of caused by a hair cell loss. We have these hair cells in our ear and uh, when those are damaged or when we lose those uh, and we can lose those because of age or noise then we have that hearing impairment in quiet. But there's other types of hearing impairments that are not represented by that hair cell loss um, and a good example of that would be um, impaired perception of speech and noise. So some people who hear perfectly fine in quiet all of a sudden, once there's some background noise, they're no longer able to pull apart the speech that they're interested in over that background noise. And so my research is kind of looking at um, more complex hearing impairments like that speech and noise one. And um, the reason I'm looking at temporal uh, regularities and temporal structure is because that uh, temporal structure is really important to speech. And the analogy I always give is that think of temporal structure like pixels in an image. So when we have less pixels, it's harder to understand what's going on in that image. And similarly, if we have reduced sensitivity to that temporal structure, so that timing information, it's going to be harder to understand speech or whatever is going on in that sound. And that's kind of what I look at. Okay, so Sonia, you, you said you were interested in hearing impairments. How does hearing work? Like, what happens when a sound comes sort of at me? Uh, towards my ear, and how does it get into the processing parts, the brain, the nerves, and so on? Um, what can you take? How if, does if, it all start? How does it all start? <laughs> if, if say, I was a sound wave going towards your ear, <laughs> perhaps a, as is happening right now, could you take us on through the journey into the yeah. ear and then through to your brain? Okay. Um, so I'll give you kind of a really crash course, really minimalist um, description of Please, the auditory yeah. system. Awesome. So uh, basically we have these sound waves, so think of it just kind of like, you know, air moving through uh, your ear. Mm -hmm. And so um, inside your ear, so um, this is the region I, I call the peripheral region, so it's the outside part. Well, not exactly the outside part. So uh, the part that you would pierce on your ear, that's called your pinna, and we're not really interested mm -hmm. in that. What we're interested, interested in is what's kind of inside that. So if you go through your ear canal, what we have are um, a couple different structures that are really important to hearing. So we have hair cells, so we have inner hair cells, outer hair cells. We have a membrane that moves with that sound, which is the basilar membrane. 
and we have this spiral structure called the cochlea and it kind of looks like a snail shell almost mm -hmm. or what you would draw if you would draw a snail shell and so each of these things is really important to hearing so when sound goes into the ear the outer hair cells basically amplify that sound by moving the basilar membrane which they sit on top of and so think of that amplification as making that sound louder almost um, so that's what the outer hair cells do. Mm -hmm. And then what the inner hair cells do is they take that mechanical energy, so that movement basically, and they transform that into something that the brain can use. So they transform it into um, an electrical signal. So they release neurotransmitter and all that. And now the brain can use the signal. So you know they basically connect to um, the auditory nerve, which connects to higher up regions. And so these hair cells sit on to top of what's called the cochlea, which is that spiral structure. And what's cool about the cochlea is if we were to unravel it, it doesn't naturally unravel, but if mm -hmm. we were to unravel it, um, different regions on the cochlea code for different frequencies of sound. So uh, the human ear can hear between uh, 20 and 20,000 hertz. So a hertz is you know one cycle per second. Um, it translates best to the perceptual sensation of pitch, so you would hear it as low pitch, and then a really high, squeakier sound would be mm -hmm. a high frequency. And so these different different parts of the cochlea are most sensitive to different frequencies. Uh, that will affect where on the cochlea moves the most, will, and that would you know affect the signal that is transmitted by the inner hair cells to the auditory nerve. And so after the auditory nerve, we get into so we were up in the peripheral region up till now, and now we go to the subcortical region, which is the region that I'm interested in. And so the subcortical region has um, the cochlear nuclei, which is um, a structure involved in sound localization, so where a sound comes from, basically. Okay. Um, and then the other structure, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of structures in the subcortical system, but the other kind of important one is the inferior colliculus. So think of this as the integration point. So basically sounds from both ears are integrated so, you know different features are integrated and all this information that we you know collected in these different places now gets integrated at this inferior colliculus making it a really important structure to look at and so now that we that's the subcortical region and if you were to kind of visualize that um so if we were to you know draw a cartoon brain we'd have this big ball top and then we okay. would have this like kind of neck that attaches to it so the subcortical region is you know the bottom of that ball and that neck part and so then we have the cortical region so that uh, we have the auditory cortex and just you know higher level um, processes that go on here and that's kind of the the end the end location of you know that sound wave now you know that information is transmitted up till there and there are descending connections as well so you know once information is processed at the cortex so at that you know the ball part of the brain mm -hmm. um, it can go down and affect you know the way you know other sounds are heard what you pay attention to and this and that but that's basically the journey sound takes in a kind of I hope simple enough way <laughs> so like that sort of back and forth journey mm -hmm. between the cortex the subcortex and then Exactly. To those peripheral and, and sort of back and forth. You hear something, maybe that makes you pay attention to it, and then it makes you sort of listen more closely. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, exactly like that. Oh, cool. Okay. At the same time, though, if you listen to something repeatedly, does it kind of produce like a numbing effect um, in your brain because of like of the constant, I guess, motion of the hair cells? Is that how that works? Uh, yeah. So uh, 
basically we can see this, you know, at the we can see this at a lot of different levels. So we can see this at the individual neuron level where, you know, a neuron, you know, we play repeated stimulus and now the neuron fires less, you know, that uh, less and less because it's, you know, getting this repeated information. And then we can also see this at the more cognitive level at, at the level of attention where some you know now this information is no longer relevant and so you kind of drone it out and that's a good example with like a leaky faucet or something you know eventually you kind of drone it out or just people background... you don't like maybe just... <laughs> okay yeah any kind of background noise something that um you know is not is not relevant to you know your, your understanding will be uh kind of drowned out Okay. Mm -hmm. So then with that in this explanation, kind of mm -hmm. how sound moves, how everything travels within the brain, where does your research kind of lie within that? Okay. So my research lies in the, you know, the higher two levels, so the subcortical and the cortical. Um, I would like, I would have liked it to include the peripheral region, but, um, you, know, you know, things didn't work out. We didn't have signals from there. Mm -hmm. Forget about that. <laughs> but so we're looking at, so I mentioned the cochlear nucleus, so that was in the sound localization, and the inferior colliculus, which was, you know, the signal integration. So those two regions in the subcortical level and then overall cortical activity. And what I do basically is look at responses from these different levels and see how these responses are correlated with one another um, in a to provide a way of characterizing uh, the entire auditory system, well, at least subcortical and cortical auditory system, simultaneously and non-invasively in humans uh, in hopes that we'll be able to look at um, the relationship between these levels in a way that may provide information um, into, you know, these complex hearing impairments. Um, also, you know, just have this general characterization so that we could compare across different uh, clinical populations, for example, older versus younger or, you know, hearing impaired versus not impaired. Um, and another thing is, you know, look at the way these, the, uh, the responses of these levels and see if that changes with something like uh, attention or, you know, any kind of modulation at the cortical level to see if that would affect lower levels. And that's not something I specifically do, but that is a future direction of my current project. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how do you get these responses from people? Do you, do you give them uh, like an auditory, a hearing sort of stimulus? Uh, yeah. So uh, to record the responses, we have a system with uh, electrodes, so 16-channel mm -hmm. EEG. So there's 16 electrodes on the scalp, two electrodes at the back of the ear, so on the mastoids, mm -hmm. and one uh, in-ear electrode that is kind of cool because it doubles as the... Uh, ear, uh, the earphone and the electrode. So it presents and records the noise. Okay. And so we have this special sound stimulus that allows us to get response from these different levels. And so this stimulus is actually the most important part of my project because what a lot of, what may not uh, may not seem challenging, but it is really challenging to get these different uh, responses from these different levels because mm -hmm. the property of neurons from these different levels are so different from one another. So at the, at the lower levels, so the subcortical levels, neurons fire really fast. So when I say neurons fire, think of it, you know, neurons activate really, really fast, and then they take a really short time to recover and then be active again. But then if we look at the cortical levels, now neurons fire much slower and take a longer time to uh, to recover. And so to look at these responses at the same time is difficult, and we needed a special stimulus that would basically work on two timescales, work at the subcortical timescale and the cortical timescale. 
So our stimulus, basically what it sounds like is these, we have these short click sounds. So, um, and then these click sounds, when you compile them all together, if you look at them you know, as a whole, the, the entire stimulus condition, they speed up and slow down. So think of it as like an ambulance um, siren, the ambulance siren noise, like the wee wee woo, that frequency modulation is what basically we get when we look at all these clicks as a whole. And that frequency modulation is just at the right time scale that you know we can look at cortical responses to it. And what's really cool about um, neural activity is that it synchronizes with sound structure. So it will we will see our cortical activity synchronizing with that uh, frequency modulation. So that kind of uh, ambulance sound. It like matches the pattern. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then at the subcortical level, what we can do is now we want something really fast, and that frequency modulation isn't fast enough. But what is fast enough is the individual clicks that made up that frequency modulation. So we can look at the response of those individual clicks. And what's cool is because the clicks are spaced, they're not spaced evenly in time, right? To create that frequency modulation, they have to be spaced differently in time. So when we look at those different clicks, the different time between clicks means that neurons will have different times to recover from adaptation. So Adaptation is, we kind of talked about it earlier, where the neuron will respond less because it's repeated stimulus, right? So now we can look at subcortical adaptation, which we know is sensitive to temporal structure, and we look, can look at cortical synchronization to temporal structure, and we can correlate those responses together, and basically correlate sensitivity to temporal structure and see if there is a relationship there. Okay. So with that, how do you sit there and correlate? Are you sitting there with like a bunch of different charts and data in front of you and you're just comparing two different sets of data? Like how does that happen? Um, so I guess it starts where we have this, you know, this raw EEG signal. Well, not really raw. There is some filtering that goes on mm -hmm. online, but basically raw signal. And what we do is we have to differentiate what is cortical and what is subcortical. And as I mentioned, the neurons are, you know, one is operates really fast and one operates slightly slower. So an easy way to differentiate that is just have a frequency cutoff. So these high frequencies are subcortical and the lower frequencies are cortical um, within the range of what is you know, brain activity. Obviously we get rid of things that wouldn't match that. And then once we have that activity, what we do is we link it to the, uh, we time lock it to when the stimulus actually occurred. So for the subcortical, we would time lock it to when the uh, the click occurred, and we would look at uh, kind of a 10 millisecond period around that click. And we look at uh, these responses. So we get these, um, they're called event-related potentials, so the click would be the event, and the potential would be this uh, fluctuation in the activity of our EEG signal. And so we look at those, so we average together a bunch of them, and we get this nice waveform, and, we and that is our subcortical signal. And then for the cortical signal it's a little bit more complicated but what we do is we do a, a fast Fourier transform so now we take our our time domain signal and we look at it in the frequency domain and we look at uh, intertrial phase coherence which is basically the degree of synchronization of you know neurons at these different uh, at different frequencies and we look specifically at the frequency of our stimulus so for example our stimulus is repeats itself 3.5 times per second, so 3.5 hertz. And so we want to see a, a nice big spike at 3.5 hertz in the condition where we have that frequency modulation. And that's what we correlate with the subcortical responses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a lot. 
it is um there's a lot lot of data in this project because there's so many different responses at so many different levels yeah so how many people do you need for a project like this um so because our our goal was to look at well a goal of our project was to look at correlations so we had uh 29 participants we actually had like 33 but um a few of them had to be excluded for different reasons um but st- if if we weren't looking at correlations even you know 10 or 15 participants we would be able to have reliable um, event related potentials at the subcortical levels and reliable synchronization at the cortical levels um, it just happens that we were imp- uh, it was really important to us to see if there was this correlation right so what did you find did you see a correlation a sort of match between what's happening subcortically mm-hmm. and cortically um so what we saw is so we were able to look we were able to get all the responses we wanted mm-hmm. but we weren't able to actually see a correlation so what that tells us is that it may be that these responses are independent or partially independent or that the relationship is long, non-linear um, but even though we didn't have this correlation it it wasn't actually that much of a, a letdown because the real important part of our project and what's most useful for you know future studies mm-hmm. would be the method so that stimulus and that stimulus can be used in future studies where we can um, modulate attention so I mentioned this a little bit earlier where we um, we can you know look at top-down processing the auditory system so we have these top-down connections uh, we don't know exactly what they do so what we can do is have a task where people pay attention or don't pay attention and see how that affects the those responses Okay, so the stimulus for this study was kind of a brand new stimulus that you had... We created, yeah. You created mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the methodology itself in terms of... I know like not using EEG data or anything like mm-hmm. that is new, but I guess how it was being used. Um, well, I guess normally when we want... You know, if you went to you know an audiologist's office and you wanted to get your hearing tested, they wouldn't use all those electrodes because they're not interested in the cortical activity they just want the subcortical activity which can be you we can get that with you know electrodes on the mastoid so behind the ears and you know one on the scalp we have all these electrodes because we want to look at that cortical synchronization and so the way that kind of works is um it's a different it's a different setup but it's not it's not something that's never been done before and it's not something that we invented it it was kind of just um, to look at synchronization, you need these electrodes. To look at um, subcortical responses, you need these electrodes. So just put them all on and record it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, please forgive me, but I'm <laughs> really interested in this stimulus you're talking about. Okay. So you said it was like a, a series of clicks, mm-hmm. something around three and a half uh, times per second. Mm-hmm. Could you possibly reproduce that and give us an idea of what it oh. sort of sounds like? Okay. Um... Is it like Ooh. a click of the tongue? So like, the clicks are really, really fast. There mm-hmm. is so between four and forty milliseconds between these clicks. So I'm gonna do a slow version of it okay. because I yes. won't be able to do it fast. Right, version. Totally. sure. <laughs> so let's okay. okay. It would be like click, 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 click. Okay. Yeah. So that's you're talking about that modulation, but you'd be sort of patterning on the on the larger scale. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it was the the subcortex that would pick up on the individual clicks. Exactly. And the cortex level that would notice a pattern where it shifts up and down. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. cool. Um, so the way I kind of think about it is 
at the cor- the cor- cortex is seeing the big picture. So mm-hmm. um, think of it like we don't see the atoms or the particles. We see, you know, the object. And then the subcortical level is looking at these small, fine details. Think of it like looking through this microscope and it is mm-hmm. seeing the atoms. It is seeing the particles. But it can't. The big picture is just it's too slow for it. So it is not okay. looking there. Okay, so how many times, I guess, per participant, did you have to repeat these stimuli? Like, how did that... Okay, so each participant listens to clicks for about uh, 40 minutes of wow. clicks. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> so the reason is because um, we need a lot of samples. So we have these different... So for the individual subcortical responses, we don't average together all the different click rates because then we there'd be no point of having these different click rates. So we need to have enough click rates of four milliseconds and enough click rates of eight milliseconds to average together to still get these event-related potentials. Um, because the thing about event-related potentials is, you know, it's it's these this activity that's happening at the level of the neuron and we're trying to get it at the level of the scalp, right? Mm-hmm. So we need, we need a lot of these trials to kind of get that. You know, there's around, uh, around 4,000 trials of each click rate. Uh, and we also have to have something to compare our frequency modulation with. So there's a, an additional condition where there is no frequency modulation and just clicks that are always 40 milliseconds apart. Mm-hmm. And so th- we need to have enough trials as that condition as well so we can always compare it. So that's why the participants have to listen to this for 40, mi- for 40 minutes. But they do get to just watch, their mo- uh, watch a movie in- on silent, so there's no volume for the movie because they listen to the clicks instead. So it's not like they're doing something like, totally boring okay. it's just kind of boring because they can't hear the movie <laughs> oh, okay so there's and it doesn't matter that there's a visual yeah it, okay. it won't affect it yeah okay okay well okay i mean i don't know if you you can answer this but what if there were subtitles on the movie and like if you're reading that and you sort of hear a voice in your head does that have any sort of interaction mm. so there are subtitles in the movie okay so they get to watch it with subtitles All right. um so i i'm not i'm not a super a big expert on exactly right. um, you know the effects that the movie choice or that the movie subtitles has but I do know that um, EEG using auditory stimulus it's very common that people get to choose the movie mm-hmm. and there's generally no control for what movie they pick and they get to watch subtitles so um, all these so basically the response that we're trying to get when they were found in isolation so not simultaneously they were found in paradigms where people got to watch movies. So it shouldn't affect us being able to see these responses. But what it really means, you know, at, you know, what the neurons specifically are doing or, you know, the kind of behind the scenes things that are going on in the brain that we don't exactly know about, I can't answer right. to that. Okay. But it seems like they're independent. They're specifically involved in the actual auditory processing and not any sort of mix up. Yeah. Well, at least, I mean, we can't say for sure that they're independent, but we can say that it's not so dependent that it interferes with our signal. And can I ask, like, what movie did you show (laughs) your participants? So they have a choice of a a couple different movies. The most common movie from, like, you know, the random DVD collection that my professor had (laughs) was um, Harry Potter, the third one, The Prisoner of Azkaban. (gasps) Great movie. All right. Um, Great movie. Probably 80% of participants choose this movie. I consider the movie like a horoscope, basically, because only like serial killers choose anything other than that. Okay. Based on what you have now, I need to know what other movies you guys have in yes, this repertoire. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, the other normal movies are there's Inception. Normal um, Inception is a, a not, the second most I love popular that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's like movies that I don't even. Um, 
There's one with like Scarlett Johansson when she was like, I don't know, 15. I don't even know what movie that was. Wait, is that Lost in Translation? No. no. Okay. Um, and then I love that movie. I think it, I don't know. Uh, and then there's uh, one. It's I think it's uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Okay, okay, that's okay. not a serial killer movie. I also love <laughs> I'm that glad movie. Someone knows what this movie is. <laughs> I am lame and barely have seen any movies, so none of this except Harry Potter and Inception makes sense to me right now. Right, as are you know the non-serial killer participants. Yeah, you know Yemen. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you can't prove anything until you find the bodies. Oh, Monica. my God. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, FYI, I have not seen either that Harry Potter movie <gasps> nor Inception. Okay, see, what? that is confirmation that someone's a serial killer because there's every so often there's someone who has not seen Harry Potter <laughs> and they still don't choose it either, which really concerns me. Why would you choose a third movie That's of a true. series you know fair, if fair. you've not seen That's the true. first two? Okay, if you haven't seen... But then it's mean, just Harry Potter. Well, maybe that's just me defending my serial killer ways. I, I, <laughs> maybe. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know. Harry Potter, I don't know. I guess it might also be based on who your participants were as well, like in terms of age demographics. Right. That's something we didn't ask They're about. all uh, younger adults, so they're university students. So they grew up with Harry Potter. They should choose Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> were you I specifically agree. looking for, um, you know, this younger participant demographic? Or? Our cutoff was 34 years of age um, because uh, hair cell loss. It, so we wanted to have uh, a common a common uh, level of hair cell, lo- hair cell loss so that uh, hearing quiet impairment should be consistent. Everyone should have normal hearing. And the best way to get that is younger people generally have better hearing. I'm going to try very hard not to feel um, to be left out. Or I want everyone to know that when she said the right cutoff now? was 34, I grilled Yemen. <laughs> like, real hard. Wow. Yeah. So, anywho, moving forward. Um, moving forward. What are you kind of hoping to do now that your master's is wrapping up? Like, how are you feeling? What are some next steps with the research, in life, <laughs> in uh, general? I'm feeling I'm feeling really good that the ra- master's is wrapping up. One thing, it, it feels... It's strange because when you were an undergrad and you had, you know, one or two months before you were done, all that had to happen was time needed to pass. But now right. for me to be done, I have to do something. I have mm-hmm. to write this manuscript up. I need to write this thesis up and I re- need to defend it. So that's a little bit nerve wracking and it's different than what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like my expertise in this area has flourished during the writing process and during these last couple of months. Um, and it's just been this really big uh shift in how much I feel like I know about this project. And after I'm done my master's, I'm planning on staying in the same lab and uh, doing a PhD. The exact project has not been worked out yet, and I'm just kind of trying to finish this master's before I uh, think too much about that. But I'm really excited to be doing a PhD. It's what I've always wanted to do, um, and I'm happy to kind of be on my way towards that. <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting. I know you're in the like final countdown mm-hmm. of your master's. It's going to feel so good when you're done. Okay, so maybe one last question. Okay. We we know you're a fan of Harry Potter. Okay. Um, outside of academia, mm-hmm. uh, other than Harry Potter movies, I suppose, <laughs> do you have any other hobbies? What do you like to do to unwind outside the lab? Honestly, I go home and watch like old Disney animated movies. And my oh. favorite one is Lilo and Stitch. I always <gasps> watch it. My keys are Lilo and Stitch. My laptop case is Lilo and Stitch. Everything is Lilo and Stitch. It just makes me feel good about life. That's... When, when science is too much, Lilo and Stitch is where I go. Oh. That's where we should leave this. <laughs> because I think those are words to live by, <laughs> frankly. When all else fails, there's Lilo and Stitch. Everyone. Exactly. 
And with that, then, I'm Monica Molinero. I'm Yuma Chen. And today we are here with Sonia Varma. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We really appreciate having no you here. No problem. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem at all. So with that, uh, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. If you'd like to listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Also, you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Also, select podcasts can now be watched at YouTube at Gradcast Radio. This episode, once again, with our guest Sonia Varma, was hosted by me, Monica Molinero. And Yemin Chen, who is apparently almost dead and can't hear very well. Thanks so much for listening and have a great night. <laughs>